You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. First Kings chapter 17. We're currently in a study of the books of First and Second Kings that we're calling Desiring the Kingdom. As we're looking at these earthly kings and earthly kingdoms and their failings and shortcomings, it stirs up within us a desire for the true king, Jesus, and his eternal kingdom. Right now, specifically, we're in a section of the book that is, for me, the most exciting. This is the life of Elijah the prophet. So 1 Kings 17, would you please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word that it speaks to us, Lord. It's thousands of years old. Lord, you, you have eternal truths in there which are incredibly relevant to us today. And so, Lord, may we hear them. May we understand them. May we receive them. Lord, we ask that you administer to us by your spirit through your word today. Lord, we want to receive everything that you have for us. So, go, Lord, give us soft, malleable, changeable hearts, Lord. Let us be receptive, humble people as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced something in your life which caused you to question, is God really there? Have you ever experienced something in your life that caused you to question, is God really there? Maybe it wasn't so much that you questioned God's existence as you questioned whether or not God really cares. Maybe something happened and you wondered, if God can do anything, then why didn't he prevent this thing from happening? Maybe you wondered, if God really loves me, then how could he have let this happen to me? It's been said that suffering nags us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. Let me say that again. Suffering nags us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. In our study today, we're going to see a woman who suffered a tragedy, and we're going to see how that tragedy affected her faith. We're going to see how it caused her to ask questions about God and about herself. But here's the other thing we're going to see. We're going to see that tragedy is not the end of this story. That's the good news of the gospel, by the way, in your life and my life as well, is that with God, tragedy doesn't get the final word. The title of today's message is From Death to Life, From Death to Life. And we'll be picking up at verse 17 of chapter 17 in 1 Kings. Here at the end of 1 Kings 17, you know, every week I've been giving you a sentence. And that sentence is kind of our outline for how we're going to study this passage. And as uh, we do that, what I love, what I would love for you to do, you know, is memorize that sentence or write it down somewhere. You know, if you need a note card, there's some in those uh, pockets in the row in front of you. You can write that down, memorize it, and then later on today when somebody asks you, hey, what did you talk about at church? You're going to be able to say, well, actually, here's what we talked about at church, and here's what it is this week, okay? As the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life, we see a picture of what Jesus does for us and the hope we have in the gospel. We're going to work our way through that sentence as we study this passage this morning. So, as the widow of Zarephath's Son. In 1 Kings 17, verse 17, it begins with these words, after this, or after these things. 
which means that in order to understand what's about to happen next, we have to read it in light of what happened immediately before this, which is what we studied last week. So what was it that happened immediately before this this verse. Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, Elijah the prophet burst onto the scene. Remember, these were the days of King Ahab, the wicked king of of the northern kingdom of Israel. Check that cheat sheet if you're curious about northern kingdom, southern kingdom, who's who. We, We want you to have that as a resource. These were the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when they ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. And during this time, people had begun worshiping a pagan deity called Baal or Baal. You know, Baal was thought to be the God who controlled the weather and specifically the rain. And if you were a farmer in the Middle East, rain was a resource that was more valuable than gold. See, the more rain you had, the more prosperous you would be. And so the people began worshiping Baal, the pagan God of rain, out of this desire to be prosperous. One of the ways that Baal was worshipped was through the offering of child sacrifices. People would literally take their children, lay them on an altar, and kill them in a desire to please Baal so that he would send them rain for their crops so they could be prosperous. It was a sick, detestable practice. And the one person who promoted the worship of Baal more than anybody else in all of Israel was King Ahab himself. And it was into this situation that Elijah the prophet came, sent by God with a message to show the people that Baal was no God at all, that he had no power. And Elijah came and he declared, there will be no more rain. Remember, Baal is the God of the rain. And Elijah said, there will be no more rain in Israel again until you turn from Baal and turn back to Yahweh. This was a major challenge to Baal, but also it was a major challenge to King Ahab because the entire economy of Israel depended on rain. So a drought would have been devastating for everyone in the country. It would have devastated the economy. You know, C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, we can ignore pleasures, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what this drought was. It was a drastic measure in which God was trying to get the people's attention so they would see the error of their ways and they would turn back to him. But as Elijah delivered this message, sent by God, doing what God called him to do, well, let's just say King Ahab wasn't very happy about it. And Elijah had to run for his life. He became a fugitive, a man on the run. Initially, he hid out and lived in a ravine. In this ravine, there was a brook flowing through it, and he had shade in the ravine. He had water in the ravine. But again, remember, there's a drought happening. And so as this drought is progressing, there's no rain. The brook dried up. And when that happened, God told Elijah, he said, okay, now I want you to go to a house, to the house of a widow in a place called Zarephath. And she will provide you with food and with shelter. Who was this widow of Zarephath? Well, this place, first of all, Zarephath, this was in the area of Sidon. This was Canaanite territory. In other words, this was outside of Israel. And this woman was a Gentile woman. Now, of course, it was safer for Elijah to be outside of Israel since King Ahab wanted him dead. But why this village? Why would God send him to this particular village? Why would God send him to the house of this particular woman? You see, God didn't send Elijah here only to 
take care of Elijah's needs. No, God sent Elijah here because he wanted to do something in the heart and the life of this woman who he sent Elijah to. God wanted to draw this woman into a relationship with him. Now, how do we know that? Here's how we know it. Because when Elijah arrived at her house, this woman was so poor, she was literally about to starve to death. She didn't even have enough food to feed herself and her son, much less to feed Elijah also. See, if, if all God cared about was just feeding Elijah, well, he could have sent him to any other family in the area, a rich family, a middle-class family, a family that had abundant food, something to share. But God sent him to this poor widow who didn't even have enough food for herself because God wanted to do something in her life. And God called this poor, starving woman to feed Elijah, which is a pretty weird thing to do, right? Except here's why it wasn't weird. Because this calling from God to feed Elijah, it came with a promise. God promised that if this woman would obey him and do what he was telling her to do, then God would make sure that she would never lack what she needed. She would always have enough for herself and for her son. Now this took an, an tremendous amount of faith on her part to do what God was calling her to do. When Elijah came to her, she only had enough flour and enough oil to make one more meal. But as she trusted in God, as she had enough faith to trust God and do what he said, God provided for her miraculously. And every day, multiple times a day, she would reach her hand into that jar of flour. She would take that jar of oil and turn it over. And miraculously, God had provided and there would be just enough to make that next meal. And you can imagine how as every day passed, as every meal passed, this woman's faith in God was increasing and growing. You can just imagine those happy days in that house when they lived in that constant miracle of God's provision multiple times a day. Every meal they ate was a miracle from God. And when Elijah, when he had arrived at this house, remember, they were on the verge of starvation. And they must have thought, wow, God sent this man to us. God sent us this grace. God really does love us. He saw our terrible situation. He had compassion on us, and he saved us from certain death. This woman was growing in faith and in this symbiotic relationship with God, which is why it's so surprising what we read in verse 17, that after this, after this miracle, this ongoing miracle of provision, after this woman doing what God had told her to do, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. The, son, the woman's son died. Understand, the death of this child was a double blow because this woman was a widow. See, not only did she love her son, and, and of course it's unnatural and it's terrible for a parent to ever have to bury a child, but remember this, as a widow, he was her only hope for the future. There was no social safety net. There was nothing to take care of her when she was old. As a widow, her only hope to be taken care of and provided for in her old age was that her son would grow up and get a job and get married and be able to take care of her in his home as she got older. But when the boy died, it was like everything was shattered. Her past, her present, her future, it was all shattered. She had already lost her husband and now her only child. And she's facing this tragedy. And as she's facing it, understand her faith is being put to the test. After all, if God really loved her, why would he let this happen to her? 
Here she was doing everything that God had asked her to do. And this is how God repays her? By letting her son die? Couldn't God have prevented this from happening? Didn't God know how much she loved this son? Didn't God know how much she needed him in her life? Look at her response in verse 18. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In her grief and her distress and her sorrow, in the pain of that moment, she blames Elijah for the death of her son. She says, you did this to me. Ever since you came here, it's been nothing but problems. You've come here and you've ruined my life. This would have never happened if you hadn't come here. Now, of course, we know that's not true. If Elijah hadn't come here, they would have starved to death a long time ago. But in her grief, in the pain of the moment, this woman is trying to make sense of why this tragedy has taken place. Guys, many people, maybe many of us, have this assumption that if you're doing what God wants you to do, if you're obeying with God, if you're walking in the will of God, then you're never going to have any hardship in your life. Guys, that's just simply not true. There's so many examples in the Bible of people, like Elijah even himself, who did exactly what God told them to do, what God called them to do, and, and yet they still face hardship and tragedy and suffering in their lives. Guys, for us as believers in Jesus Christ, there is a promise that we will live happily ever after, but that promise is not in this world. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. That's a promise, right? So you can add that to your list of Bible promises, right? That's one that people don't always like to highlight and like write on their mirror at, the, at home, right? Uh, Jesus himself, think about this. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and yet he suffered hardship. He was betrayed by his closest friends. People he loved died. He was hated. He was wrongly accused. Ultimately, he was murdered. He was beaten and put to death in cold blood. We live in a fallen, broken world. And even if you are doing exactly what God has called you to do, you know what? Sometimes businesses fail. Sometimes health fades. Sometimes relationships are broken. Sometimes tragedy strikes. And being a Christian doesn't exempt us from these hardships. What it does give us, it gives us hope. It gives us strength. It gives us comfort. It gives us assurance. But notice what this woman said in verse 18. After blaming Elijah for the death of her son, she then blames herself. Right? She's all over the place. She's trying to make sense of what's going on. She says, well, maybe the reason why God let my son die is because of some sin in my life, because of something I've done. Apparently, there was something in her past that she was ashamed of. She was haunted by guilt because of something in her past. And she's wondering, did God allow my son to die? Did God do this to me to punish me for something I've done in the past? Guys, she's just trying to make sense of what, what's going on and why this happened. Like I said earlier, suffering nags us with questions about God in a way that comfort never could. When we're suffering, we tend to ask questions about God's love, about God's justice, that we don't usually ask when things are comfortable and easy in our lives. Understand, this woman, she's what we might call a new believer, right? She's new to the faith. And, and now her faith 
is being put to the test. Up until this point, her relationship with God has only consisted of her receiving blessings and goodness and faithfulness in her life. But now, with this instance, she's faced with a question. Will she still trust in God in the midst of tragedy? Will she still trust in God when things don't go the way that she hoped they would go? What exactly is her faith in? See, here's the thing, guys. Do you know this? Faith isn't really faith until it's tested. Think about that. Faith is not faith until it's put to the test. It's when you can't clearly see. It's when you don't fully understand. That's when faith is really faith. That's when it's put to the test. The things that you believe about God, let me ask you, the things you believe about God, are they only true when everything is going well in your life? Are they also true when things go wrong? Let's move on to the next part of this sentence. As the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life. Verse 19, Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chambers where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. It's as if Elijah is trying to transfer his life into the life of this child. Now remember, there's no playbook for this, right? There's no, no book you turn to and says, okay, here's how to raise somebody from the dead. Up until this point in, in biblical history, in human history, no one else has ever been raised from the dead, right? He's, he's just trying to do something. And so he stretches himself out on this child. There's no precedent for this. It's never happened before. It seems impossible, but Elijah brings this situation to God anyway in prayer. In verse 22, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to to Elijah. Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Just imagine the excitement, the joy that must have filled this home, the thankfulness that filled this widow's heart. Her faith, we read, was strengthened as a result of this great miracle. But maybe you hear this story, maybe you read this story this morning, and you say to yourself, cool story, but so what? Cool story. I'm happy for this lady. But why should I care? Well, what does this story have to do with me and my life? Let me tell you, I want to tell you now what this story has to do with us and our lives. And that's the third part of the sentence. As the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life, we see a picture of what Jesus does for us. A picture of what Jesus does for us. Not only can we relate to the widow in this story, we can also see ourselves in her son. You see, the Bible tells us that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from his saving work, his transforming work in our lives, you know what we are? We're dead. We're dead, guys. Ephesians 2 says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, you might say, dead? I think that, that seems like something I would remember. No, no, no. It's talking about spiritual death. And it's telling this, this, that every single person in the world, this is our default condition, our default spiritual condition, that you are dead spiritually. So while you're mentally and physically alive, your spirit, that part of you that is eternal, that part of you that God created to connect with him is dead. 
And as a result, you're disconnected from God and you are without hope in this world. This boy's story, guys, this is your story. This is my story. You and I, we were dead apart from Jesus. You know what the worst part about being dead is? It's that there's nothing you can do about it, right? When you're dead, someone might yell at you, sit up, stand up, pull yourself together. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix that condition. This boy was powerless to help himself. And the same is true of us on a spiritual level. When you are dead spiritually, you are powerless to fix that situation. But check out what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 4. You were dead, but God, right? The two most beautiful words in the English language. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, but God loved you so much that he intervened on your behalf and God made you alive. He transferred his life to you. Jesus didn't come to make bad people act nice. Jesus came so that dead people could come alive. He transferred his life into you, into you and me. It says in Ephesians 2, verse 3, that actually the biggest problem with being spiritually dead is this. It means that we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, those mistakes that you've committed in your life, those sins that you've carried out in your lifetime, you'll have to answer to God for those things. Every one of us at different times in different ways, we have broken God's laws. And as a result, we have heaped up for ourselves judgment. What you need, what I need, what we need is a new life. Think about this. You can't put a dead person on trial, can you? And the good news of the gospel is that the old you, the rebel, the guilty one was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and died. And because of Jesus' resurrection, you can be born again to new life. That means that in Jesus, you receive a new identity and a new destiny. No longer are you a child of wrath, but you become a child of God. And it tells us in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7 that God raises you up and seats you in the heavenly places with Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. That's talking about eternal life. Rather than judgment, you get to experience the riches of God's grace forever. That's what Jesus does for us. This boy's story is a picture of that for us. And it goes on to say this in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Grace is a gift. It's a resurrection. It's a new life. It's an eternal hope. It's God's gift to you. You don't earn it. How could you? You were dead. It's what he did for you. And then it says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the reason God saved you is because he has a purpose for your life. Let me say that again. God has a purpose for your life. There are things that he wants you personally to do and fulfill and carry out. Your life here on earth, it is short. Like in, the, in, the, in view of eternity, it's like a drop in the bucket. It's a moment. Eternity is long. 
And, and if for the rest of eternity, you're going to be taken care of and you're going to be receiving, you're going to be on the receiving end of blessings and grace and comfort and peace, then what does that mean for this life? You know what it means? It means that you are free in this life. You are free to use the short time that you have right now, the, the short time that you have left, you're free to live radically, to live generously, to live courageously, not for yourself, because that is going to come, right? The blessing's going to come. Now you get the freedom to live not for yourself, but to live wholeheartedly, to fulfill God's calling on your life and do the things that he has called you to do, the ways that he wants to use you in this world, to do his work, to spread his love, to help others come to know the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ. You know who we're like in this story? Well, well we are like the woman whose faith is tested by tragedy. But we're also like the son who was dead, but then made alive through a miracle of God's grace. The way you receive that grace, by the way, it says there in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by simply trusting in what Jesus did to save you in his life, his death, and his resurrection. When you do that, God comes into your life and causes you to be born again. And I just want to extend this invitation. If there's anyone here today and you say, I don't know if I've ever done that. Today, let today be the day. When you say, yes, I embrace it, I believe it, and I put my hope and my trust in what Jesus did for me. When you do that, friends, God causes you to be born again to new life, resurrected to new life in him. And you know what else, though? Maybe there are some of you, and there's someone you love, there's someone you care about who is spiritually dead. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a child, an adult child or a teenager. Maybe it's a dear friend of yours. And no matter how much you talk at them and share with them about Jesus, there's no response. But what else would you expect, guys, from a dead person? I want to encourage you to follow the example of Elijah in this story, to pray for that person, to pour out your heart to the Lord, no matter how impossible it seems. No one had ever come to life from the dead before when Elijah did this. He was praying for something that seemed impossible. And I want to encourage you, follow Elijah's example in your life as well. Ask God to intervene and bring life out of death spiritually for those you know and care about who don't know him. And finally, we see that as the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from death to life, we see a picture of what Jesus does for us, and we also see a picture of the hope that we have in the gospel, the hope we have in the gospel. You know, this story is actually mentioned in another place in the New Testament. It can be easy to not realize it, but it's there in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. We're told about this story. It's mentioned in Hebrews 11. This story of the son's resurrection from the dead is used as an example of what can happen when we have faith. But here's what's interesting. Right after that, in that same verse, look at what it says. It says, yes, there were some who, who received their loved ones back from the dead, raised to life again, but there were others. There were others, basically, who didn't. There were others who had faith also, but they died, their loved ones died, and they weren't resurrected from the dead. It says that those people died in the hope of what? A better resurrection. What is this better resurrection? Uh, I'll tell you a story. When we lived in Hungary, our first daughter, when she was born, 
Uh, she was very sick. She almost died. She was uh, two weeks in the ICU, and she had uh, brain damage from oxygen deficiency. She had suffered during birth, and uh, she spent several more weeks after that in a neurological hospital where she received, you know, a lot of neurological treatments. And uh, there was damage to her brain. We got the CT scans and everything, and we, we ended up doing eight months of physical therapy with her six hours a day, every single day. It was exhausting. The fact that she survived it all was a miracle. In fact, her doctor, the ICU, neonatal ICU guy, came to her birthday party, right? Drove like three hours to where we lived to come to her birthday party. But the fact that she also recovered from this brain damage it was an absolute miracle. So it was, a, it was a double miracle. And there was this sense in our church at the time from those who were around it, we had prayed for her to get better. And there was this just heavy sense that we lived in that God was there. We were experiencing incredible outpouring of God's grace and the sense of awe that we had experienced a miracle right before our eyes. But three years later, uh, the man who took over for me as pastor of that church there in Hungary, he and his wife had a baby, and when that baby was three months old, it turned out the baby had a disorder. And of course, we prayed for that baby just the same. We prayed over the baby, we prayed for the family. People around the world prayed for the baby, but their baby died. And people at that time, they wanted to make sense of why this had happened. That's what we do, right? And people said, well, you know what? Here's why it happened, because Nick and Rosemary had more faith than these guys did. And guys, that's not true. And it also says a lot about what you think about God, that he's so petty, right, that he's, he's doing this. Uh, other people said, oh, it must be because of some sin that these people committed earlier in their lives. God is paying them back for it now. That's not why it happened. Guys, those comments were hurtful. They, they were awful, even bordering on blasphemous. You see, for parents who are already suffering the loss of a child, it was like twisting a knife in their hearts. It was like pouring salt in wounds. And guys, I'll tell you what, as we read this story and we rejoice with the mother who received her child back from the dead and we praise God for this miracle, at the same time, there are many of us in this room who when we read this story, we can't help but feel a tinge of sadness because there's someone who you love who has died. And you so wish that they would have been brought back from the dead, but they weren't. And maybe you've been there and you prayed for someone who was sick to get better and they didn't. When you read this story, you might say, well, good for her. But what, why didn't that happen for me? She got a miracle. Why didn't I? Guys, what does this story mean for us in that situation? I don't know if you noticed this. But this widow's son, where is he now? Does he have an Instagram? Can you hit him up on Snapchat? Can you send him a text message? No. He died a long, long time ago. You see, even though he was resurrected a few years later, guess what? He got sick again, and he died again. And that time, there was no resurrection. For this widow's son, this resurrection he experienced, it was a temporary fix. And that's why it says here in Hebrews 11, we're told that as cool as this was, as amazing as it was, as glorious as it was, we need something better, guys. We need something better than just a temporary fix and a, and a, and a momentary solution. 
We need a lasting solution. That is what we have in Jesus Christ. Guys, the hope of the gospel is not the promise that God will fix all of your problems and take all the pain out of your life. No, the hope of the gospel is something better than that. Better. It's the promise that just as Jesus was raised to new life, we too will be raised to a new and better life when our time in these bodies of flesh is over. In Jesus, our faith, our hope is not that we will have a comfortable, problem-free life here on earth. No, our faith, our hope is in something better than that. It's that Jesus took your judgment. He overcame death. Because he rose from the grave, you too will rise again if your faith is in him to eternal life. Because of what he did, guys, the loved ones of yours who, whose faith was in him, you can be sure that when we are reunited on that day in eternity, you will hear those same words that this widow heard in verse 23. Behold, your son lives. Your mother, your father, they live. Your husband, your wife, your dear friends, see, they live. And you get to spend eternity with them, enjoying the riches of God's grace for the ages to come. That is the hope of the gospel. And guys, that is really good news. But let me tell you what, it's, it's important and it's also urgent. So I want to encourage you today. Embrace it, believe it, hope in it, and let's share it with others so they too can go from death to life. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, it is grace that you intervened in our lives when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were children of wrath. Lord, thank you that you looked upon us and you loved us. And Lord, you intervened on our behalf so that we could be brought from death to life. Lord, may we not pass up such a glorious hope. Lord, thank you for this miracle in her life. Thank you for the miraculous things that you do. Lord, we ask for more of these things, manifestations of your power. And Lord, yet we know that we need something better. And thank you, Lord, that you have provided that better thing that we need, that better hope, that better resurrection in and through Jesus. And so it's in this sense that we hold this bread in our hands, your body broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins, that old person we were, the rebel, the guilty one, nailed to the cross with you to not be raised again. But Lord, you raised us in new life with a new identity and a new destiny. That is what we remember. That's what we rejoice in as we hold this bread in our hands, the wonder of the cross. And we take this together with thankfulness in our hearts for your forgiveness, for your work on our behalf. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.